Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. If you steadily lose vote share among a declining but still large demographic like white non-college voters, that will easily cancel out all the advantages you have from the changing mix of voters. Trump is president today because he generated huge shifts among declining white non-college constituencies. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Listen, I normally start this podcast by telling you some take about the world, something that struck me in the last few weeks about uh, the nature of populism, how it's progressing around the world, how we're managing to hopefully beat it back. Today, I want to do something slightly different. I wanted to be one of the first people to find out about my next book project. The working title is The Great Experiment, How to Make Diverse Democracies Work, and it is arguing what the title implies. I'm trying to think about why it is so hard to make that transition from mono-ethnic, monocultural to multi-ethnic democracies, to make that transition in countries in North America from societies that perhaps have always been diverse but that had a strong racial and religious hierarchy to ones that hopefully are becoming more fair and more egalitarian. It will be informed by comparative politics, informed by history, a wide-ranging look at why this is such a hard problem, but just as importantly, an optimistic book. Because though I am quite pessimistic, sometimes despairing about the moment-to-moment changes in our politics, about this period of deep populism we are going through and the dangers it poses to our democracy, I'm often more optimistic about what is going on on the ground. I think that our societies actually are more just, more tolerant, more inclusive than they were 20 or 50 years ago. And I'm hopeful that if we figure out the right model for society, an inspiring vision of a common life that we want to achieve, then our societies, our democracies can be more inclusive and more fair and more vibrant, more filled with friendship and love towards each other in 20 or 50 years. Yes. I spent the last month writing a book proposal and then going through the slightly nerve-wracking experience of trying to shop this book. And I'm just incredibly happy to report that the book will be published by, by my favorite publisher in the United States, by Penguin Press, by Bloomsbury in the United Kingdom, and that there will also be French and Italian and Dutch editions. And we're still talking to various publishers in other countries. I'm pretty confident that it will be translated into a number of other languages as well. It'll take me a while to write this book. I want to get this one right. I want to make it a serious and readable and exciting book. So it's not going to be out tomorrow. But you will start to see some of the conversations on this podcast inflected by the research I'm doing, by the questions I'm asking myself, and by the people that I'm going to be talking to. So Thank you for listening to this happy news, and I hope that you'll enjoy joining me on this journey of trying to figure out the right answers about this very important question. 
But now I'm excited to introduce Rui Teixeira. Rui is a very accomplished American political scientist. He's a senior fellow at Center for American Progress. One of his most important ideas is the idea of a rising democratic electorate, the idea that the kind of demographic and to some extent economic and ideological changes that we're seeing happen in the United States favor the Democratic Party. And this idea has really become a kind of meme. It has deeply influenced and inflected American politics on the left, but also in certain ways on the right. It has driven the paranoia of certain people like Michael Anton on the right who are arguing for somebody like Trump because he is the person who can supposedly stop this rising demographic majority from taking over. And it's leading to a lot of triumphalism on the left of people who are saying we just have to mobilize the right people, just get them out to vote. The future belongs to us anyway and we can kind of forget about white voters, particularly the white working class. Well, what's really interesting about Rui, as you will see in this conversation, is that he doesn't believe any of us. That he stands by his original thesis, but believes that it has really been misread and exaggerated, and that all of these people who are making reference to his work are possibly going to cost Democrats the 2020 election. So if you want to understand what Democrats need to do in order to have a chance of beating Donald Trump in November, or in thinking about what this country might look like 20 or 40 years from now in terms of its demographic and political profile, this is the conversation for you. Welcome to the podcast, Ray. Glad to be here. So listen, there's a whole bunch of things that I would love to talk to you about, but let's start sort of at the beginning of one of the concepts that's really associated with your name, which is the idea of the rising democratic majority. Mm -hmm. What was that thesis? When did you first write about it? What do we need to know about it? Okay, well, that refers to a book I wrote with John Judas that came out in 2002. And the thesis John and I had is that if you looked at the underlying demographic, ideological, and economic changes in the country, you could see the contours of a new majority, popular majority, emerging that was built on demographics like changing race-ethnic distribution, the professionalization of the occupational structure, the shifting roles of women, and so on. So there's a demographic component, and we were moving into this sort of different type of economy, a post-industrial economy, and people's ideology was moving away from a strict Reaganite type conception of how to run policy and the economy. And we put all that together and we said, it looks like things are moving in such a way the terrain is shifting toward the Democrats to the point where, you know, a coalition can be glimpsed that would form a majority of the American voting electorate and that it was taking shape in different ways in different parts of the country. But if you sort of drilled beneath the level of a lot of states, you could see shifting political inclinations taking place in a lot of states in the Southwest and in the South and so on, and that this was really going to change the political demography and geography of the country. So help me understand this theory a little bit better, because I think Mm -hmm. nowadays when people refer to it, they often just think of the demographic element of it. And that's important, and we'll discuss Mm -hmm. it. But as you were presenting it right now, you were also talking about economic and ideological shifts. So this is, you know, this book comes out in the middle of the first term of of a Bush presidency. He looks very dominant at the time after 9-11 and so on. Mm -hmm. And so it really was 
sort of a ray of hope for liberals and progressives that the train might shift quite quickly. In some ways, of course, that's proven to be true culturally on many issues. What are the factors you were listing there? So particularly help me to explain how economic changes and ideological changes might give Democrats this sort of big advantage. Right. Well, I think the best way to think about that part of the argument is to think about it in sort of geographical terms. And we floated this term ideopolis in our book. And what that was referring to is metropolitan areas, you know, areas of relatively high population density that were growing, were dynamic, and where the occupational and economic structure was changing quite a bit. And that if we looked at these areas, we could see that they were changing in ways that fundamentally advantage the Democrats. Educational levels were going up, sort of cosmopolitan thinking was going up. There was a perceived need for the government to do certain things to provide services. These areas seem to be pretty different than the areas that had fueled sort of the Reagan revolution and that were really pro-Bush. So is this so basically a story of sort of urbanization? Is it basically just that people were moving into the inner suburbs and the cities as opposed to the exurbs and rural areas? Or? Well, it's certainly a story about urbanization, suburbanization, about the shifting population structure of the United States and how it's distributed and what the implications of that are politically, it's both, which is formed by a lot of things. I mean, certainly in migration, but also, you know, just sort of the cohorts that rise up in these areas, that grow up in these areas, tend to be different than the people in other areas. And, you know, I think it's clear that the economic and population center of gravity of the United States has shifted toward these kinds of metropolitan areas, which are stocked with the very demographics that we talked about in our book that are tending to be shifting toward the Democrats at this point and for the last 20 or so years. But I think one thing that's very important to keep in mind about our thesis is that we weren't arguing that because this was happening, the Democrats are going to win every election. Right, we right. weren't arguing that you could simply build a majority exclusively out of these growing demographics. We were very explicit in our argument that Democrats are progressives, or we want to think about it, had to keep a certain base level of support among demographics that were you know, not growing or declining, for example, non-college or working class whites. And that if you could do that, it's pretty clear how you could build this majority in a pretty solid way. If you didn't do that, there was always the possibility that things would spike back in the other direction, particularly when you look at the geographical distribution of votes in the United States and the relative influence in presidential and Senate elections. So that was something that I, that was part of our thesis I always felt people didn't understand mm-hmm. or even bother to think about. They just heard, you know, it's kind of like what you were alluding to earlier. Some Democrats heard, well, the demographics, et cetera, shifting in our direction, therefore we're good. And we don't have to worry about all these things that might bite us in the ass. And that was never our argument. We always thought that you had to be very careful about how you managed and shaped this coalition, given all the other ways in which it might be undercut. So let's get into that. So I, okay. I think you're right that there is a very interesting evolution, even in how people refer to this theory, which has proven to be incredibly influential. But whereas you called it the emerging democratic majority. Mm -hmm. Today, people often call it something like the inevitable demographic majority. Or the rising American electorate or something like that. Right. And so the idea has both become that this sort of, in, in, in some kind of more automatic way, will give Democrats a majority over time. And it has collapsed what you were describing as ideological economic and demographic developments just onto the demographic dimension. Uh-huh. But that dimension is, of course, important. It's important in your book and in your work as well. So explain to us why it is that 
Democrats might be really heartened by the demographic developments in the United States. I mean, this idea is so mainstream now, but in a way people know it, but tell it to us in your own terms. But then also, let's discuss a little bit and how that idea is now misunderstood mm -hmm. in the way that it sort of seems automatic, when, as you're saying, it, it, it's not necessarily. The main thing that people know about and think about, and it's quite reasonable, is that if you look at the shifting race-ethnic distribution in the United States, you have on the one hand non-Hispanic whites, and on the other hand you have Hispanics, you have Blacks, you have Asian Americans, and so on. Population growth is being driven by the latter, not the former. Non-Hispanic whites are barely growing at all. In fact, they're going to very soon start declining even in absolute terms. So the country is increasingly shifting toward a mix that favors these so-called minorities. And how do these people vote? Well, we know Blacks are about a 9 to 1 constituency, Hispanics are a 2 to 1 Democratic constituency. Um, Asian Americans have shifted from being more even to about a 2 to 1 constituency now. So, you know, it's not very complicated math to show that that, all else equal, favors the Democrats. There are other things that are going on. You know, the shift of the educated population toward the Democrats is very real, and this country is shifting toward more, not less, educational attainment, more, not less, college graduates. And the college graduates who vote more often than people who don't have college educations are definitely trending Democratic, particularly the most educated or professional part of that demographic, which we talked about a lot in the book. We see that women, by and large, are shifting toward the Democrats, particularly, again, single and highly educated women. And then the thing that I think we didn't talk about that much in the book, but it's increasingly important, I think, and people really underestimate its importance, is, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders talks a lot about young people, and I think he will get into this, I suppose, and I think drastically overestimates how much things like the turnout of young people can change things. But it is a fact that the generational composition of the U.S. electorate is changing dramatically over time, and there's no more powerful demographic force than generational replacement, where you have new generations entering the electorate, increasingly dominating that electorate over time, while the older generations age and die off. And so it's an endless process. <laughs> and where we are today in the United States is that if you look at, well, even you can look at the uh, you know older half of Gen X, they're actually very similar to millennials, but millennials themselves are very significantly different in terms of their policy views, in terms of their orientation toward the Democrats, in terms of their so-called liberalism, whatever. And we look at Gen Z coming up behind the millennials, and they're quite similar, and if anything, even more liberal. So we're working on a project now, we're projecting forward these generational effects, you know, under different assumptions to see how big they're going to be. But, you know, just take it from me, they're going to be pretty big, they already are kind of big, and they're just going to get bigger in the future. And this is driven not just by the fact that these generations are of a different race-ethnic composition, but also by the fact that if you look at white voters from the millennial generation, white voters from the Gen Z generation, and even control for education, they're very different than their older counterparts. Mm. So not only are whites declining as a percent of U.S. voters, we can also infer from the data that the mix of whites is going to change in such a way as to advantage the Democrats over time. So this is the kind of thing that people look at when I point out all these things and they say, well, this is great. We don't have to do anything. All we've got to do is wait for the world to come to us, which is a profoundly mistaken view. Because just so let me get into what, why that might be mistaken. And I okay. take it that there's sort of two different areas here, right? So one is that this assumes that, you know, you 
keep the same percentage of the vote in each of those groups, you ramp up the share of the overall electorate that the groups that are favorable to you take up. You ramp down the share of the electorate that is unfavorable to you. And as a result, you win the next election. That's easy, right? But of course, it assumes that you can actually keep the same share of a vote among those groups that are relatively less favorable to you. And it seems like that is the big assumption that it's gone wrong. The Democrats assumed they would always have a certain share, especially of a white working class electorate. But like social democratic parties throughout Western Europe, that has turned out to be Shamira. Actually, it's fallen quite quickly. And uh, in some elections, it's fallen more quickly than those other effects. And therefore, the democratic share of the vote has not gone down. So how should we think about those two relative forces? I mean, how likely is it that the Democrats will be able to stabilize the share of the vote among the white working class? And if they don't, how damaging is that? How much can they compensate for a further loss of support among the white working class mm -hmm. just by playing the demographic waiting game? Right. Well, that is the underlying weakness of that sort of standard view among lots of people in democratic circles. It's even a questionable assumption, you could argue, that you're even going to continue to, say, get two-thirds of the Hispanic vote. But what you're pointing out is that even if that's true, it can be shown very easily that if you steadily lose vote share among a declining but still large demographic, like white non-college voters, that will easily cancel out all the advantages you have from the changing mix of voters. And that's exactly what happened in the 2016 election. Trump is president today because he generated huge shifts among declining white non-college constituencies all over the country, really, but especially and consequentially in the Midwest. And he's going to try to do the same thing in this coming election. So the idea that you didn't have to be attentive to the declining demographics because you had the rising demographics makes no sense mathematically, has been disproven in practice, and is in fact arguably the largest question the Democratic Party and maybe the left in general has to face today. How do you stabilize your support among these constituents, maybe even cut into the support right of the right and right populists are getting among this. What do you have to offer them? Do they even think you're you're listening to them? Which is actually a you know, it's not that's not just a throwaway comment. If you look at the data and you talk to people who are in this demographic and who have moved in the direction of being for someone like Trump, that is a very common complaint. They don't even think the elites who run these left wing parties are even listening to them that they're much more interested in other parts of their coalition. And in fact, they look down on them. I mean, this has been a big subject of debate coming off the 2016 election here is that I would say the average liberal, maybe even particularly white liberals in the Democratic Party, basically thinks all Trump voters are racists. And that's really what they think about them. It's not even, it's not even that much more. They don't just don't understand how anyone could vote for Trump. And there must be because they're basically bad people. They have bad attitudes. So, you know, the complex ways in which people like that process the world, have experienced the world, are trying to deal with the communities they live in. And yeah, maybe they have some views that are, you know, could be categorized as racially inflected or reactionary, but they feel that educated elites in places like, you know, here where we're talking in Washington, D.C. and other places, they literally look down on them and think they're just people whose time has passed. And that really feeds into the whole rising demographics kind of conceit, is that since we can't reach these people, and since they are basically hopeless, our goal has to be just to get more of our people 
and to the electorate as fast as possible because there's no point in talking to these other people because they're essentially hopeless. And I think that's, yeah, I think that's a big problem for the left everywhere. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Yeah, I think there's two striking mistakes here. One is normative. I mean, one is to essentially treat part of a population as being deplorable to a beyond hope, and you can sort of write them off and forget about them. And really the way the Democrats are going to win is to just mobilize the sort of demographics who tend to be favorable to them anyway and quite literally wait for the less favorable demographic to die out. And I think that that is not a way that we should ever think about our fellow citizens. But the other element of that then is a strategic mistake, which is an overestimation of how favorable the development actually is going to be. And so I just want to get a little bit deeper into that. I mean, right Mm -hmm. now, what share of a vote is white working class and what share of the vote are the most favorable minorities to the Democratic Party? Okay, well, based on our projections, and you know, there's higher projections, lower projections, but our assessment is that about 42% of voters in the 2020 presidential election will be white non college, which is a couple points less than it was in 2016. So, well over two fifths are white non college, and critically, It's much more than that in states that Democrats absolutely have to win. Like in Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, it ranges from, I think, 54 to 58%. So (laughs) you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out if you get crushed in this demographic, it's going to easily cancel out whatever benefit you might have from a little bit higher turnout among your constituencies or just the underlying changing mix of eligible voters. And what show of the vote would be black and what show of the vote would be Hispanic? Well, again, there's a different overall and in states. In the 2016 election, blacks were about 12% of voters and you know, Hispanics maybe, again, it depends on whose data you look at, maybe 8%. Yeah, so I think that's just helpful. I always find, by the way, this is a slight side point about social science, but we're so obsessed with causation often, so obsessed with the intractable questions that require sort of fancy statistics that we often don't look at just the descriptive stats. And when you just look at the descriptive stats, a lot of these points become obvious. So what you're saying is about 42% of the vote is uh, non-college white, about 20% of the vote is black or Latino. And so when people say, hey, we just need to play to blacks and Latinos, Absolutely, for Democrats, it's important to mobilize them, and it's for substantive moral reasons important to listen very carefully to their concerns. But this idea that they can go and win you in a presidential mm-hmm. election just goes pop the moment you realize that 20% of the election in 2016, perhaps they're a couple of percentage points more in 2020. Let me ask you a different question. We, we mm-hmm. chatted about this recently. So, in every election in which Barack Obama won, a majority of his voters for white. This does not mean that the majority of white people vote for Barack mm-hmm. Obama, but because they are such a higher share of the electorate as a whole, a majority of the votes that Barack Obama won, both in 2008 and 2012, was white. A majority mm-hmm. of the vote that Hillary Clinton won in 2016 was white. Was yeah, white. About three-fifths. A- yeah. At what mm-hmm. point do you think Democrats have a realistic chance of winning the presidency 
without most of their voters being white? At what point can they win the White House realistically while recruiting a majority of the voters from demographic groups that are not white? We've looked at this as part of the States of Change project I'm involved in. And our guess, based on the data, is that maybe if you got spectacular turnout increases from black and Latino voters, you might be able to do that in 2032. <laughs> Making more realistic assumptions, probably not until 2036. So then we've got a number of cycles ahead of us where the majority of votes are going to come for the Democrats if they win or not. It's going to come from, from white voters. And there's still going to be an important segment of that that has to come from white non-college voters. I mean, I think that's one thing that is sort of contributed to the mythology about the rising American electorate is, you know, it isn't just people look at blacks and Hispanics and say, well, but they also think, oh, well, now we can kind of count all the white college voters too, because they're moving in our direction. But they're actually much less favorable than non-whites to the Democratic Party. And I think their trend toward the Democrats is softer. So from the data we've seen so far, it would appear that Bernie Sanders might actually, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves here in terms of talking about the nomination in the 2020 election, but there's some evidence that there's softness there among white college voters when looking at a candidate like Sanders. So there are minefields all over the place for the Democrats. And the rising American electorate thesis, because it focuses mostly and derives a lot of its power from the demographics that are most overwhelmingly democratic, but it, it sort of slips in under, the, under that cover a lot of other demographics to kind of make up that majority that are actually less reliable right, and right. that are more difficult to keep in the fold. So basically the demographic thesis, pure demographic thesis is a house of cards. And I always feel a little bad that you know, <laughs> I'm partly responsible for having put some of these uh, ideas and data into play, you know, but what are you going to do? You make an analysis and people take the part of it they want to listen to and they discard the part they don't want to listen to. Well, I think it's, it's certainly not, not your fault that people overinterpreted, misinterpreted your theory. I think what's striking about this moment is that so much of a basic democratic strategy for how to win the election in 2020 and for how they envisage the next 20 or 30 years of American politics is derived from your theory. And yet you, as well as John Judas, by the way, the people who came up with this idea are extremely skeptical of those implications, but that then gets ignored. So I think it shows to what extent it's a house of cards or it's built on a foundation of sand, I fear. There's another element that I want to think through before we get to, to 2020 and some of the sort of projection, which is we've been talking about the more demographic elements in terms of different ethnic groups and so on. Um, mm -hmm. What about age? So, yeah. you know, first of all, how progressive are young people is one question that's in my mind. But the other question that's perhaps even bigger is, I feel like certainly for the time that I've been alive, which at this point is, you know, that few years either anymore, but even going back before that, mm -hmm. there's always been this idea that young people are super left-wing and super progressive. And if only we wait for another 10 years, then mm -hmm. the left is going to own the future. I think that's something that's always been in the water in, in Britain in terms of support for the Labour versus the Conservative Party, in Germany and so on. And in fact, it strikes me that when we think of the electorate that now most reliably comes out of the polls, and that is most conservative at the moment, sort of mm -hmm. baby boomers, 
they were once thought to be extremely left-wing. I mean, this was the group of the 60s revolts and sort of uh, rebellion against the post-war establishment and the people who wanted big changes. And, you know, you fast forward 50 years and the revolutionary 2023-year-old becomes the Fox News watching support of Donald Trump. Now, I realize that perhaps we always overestimated yes. the section mm -hmm. of the population that actually was on the left at the time and so on. But certainly the narrative then was, well, all these young people are left-wing and that's going to dominate our politics. It's not how it worked out. Is there any reason to actually think that this sort of quite clear lean to the left we have among young people right now will persist 30 or 50 years from now? Well, actually, there is reason to think that they will carry through the life cycle, a fair number of the attitudes they have now. Certainly the stickiest attitudes that cohorts tend to have are like around sociocultural issues. Those are really quite sticky. But some of the attitudes about the role of government, the kind of programs they prefer, things like that are also at least somewhat sticky and party ID is pretty sticky and there's no more better predictor of voting than your party identification. So, but some of go, this but does go back in the United stick. States to the 1960s. Wasn't right, it true that young people were more in favor of a Democratic Party than older people? Well, the early baby boomers, of whom I am one, were the leading edge of that radical movement in the 60s. And they actually, while they didn't necessarily continue being radical, they did continue to lean toward the Democratic Party. So, they they were, do that until today. the millennials came into the electorate, they were the most liberal or pro-democratic cohort mm -hmm. with, the, with the early baby boomers. The late baby boomers were, were actually pretty different. If you look at the people born from 55, 56 through 64, they're very different than the people born 46 to 54. I mean, they're much more conservative. And so was the leading edge of Gen X, the oldest Gen Xers. And then by the time you get midway through Gen X, you have a more liberal cohort and that bleeds into the millennials. So. But, but when the wishy-washy answer here is that, yes, there's a lot of stickiness to generations, but it's not like they hold all their attitudes and their inclinations as they get older. There is some conservatizing effect in different ways at different times for different cohorts. But it's rarely the case anyway that cohorts necessarily can by themselves change politics simply by waiting for them to come around. And people overestimate the extent to which this is possible, and especially they underestimate how long it'll take for these changes to take place and how many other countervailing factors there may be. So help me to understand that, because you're making this distinction between early baby boomers and late baby boomers. So let's say people born from, do you say, 46 to 55, and then say 56 to 65 or something like yeah, that. Yeah, something like that. Okay. Um, mm -hmm. So two questions. A, is it still true today that early boomers are more likely to vote for Democrats than late baby boomers. Yes. But then question number two, is it true today that baby boomers on the whole prefer the Democratic Party to the Republican Party? I think if you look at party identification as opposed to presidential voting, those are two different things. And most cohorts in the United States actually have a party ID advantage for the Democrats, most mm -hmm. age groups. It's only the oldest age group that tends to have a pro-Republican bias. And the more you get into the senior population that's, you know, so-called so silent generation, the more conservative they are. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's not much of a lean, but I think the lean is still there. And then if you cut the generation in half and you look at the early boomers, as opposed to the late boomers, it's much more obvious. So that's by the way, it goes interestingly against the cliche that all these old white men 
all the most thoroughly conservative people who are going to vote for Republicans. Now, yeah. on the one hand, I guess... Life cycle effects just aren't... The way this is typically done by academics, if you want to understand someone's... the evolution of people's political views in an age sort of sense, you have to look at age, period, and cohort effects, right? So there's effects on their political dispositions that is attributable to the cohort they're in, the generation. There's effects that are attributable to them going through the life cycle. Maybe they get married, they have a little more conservative economic issues. And then things may happen in the period that affect them, like gay marriage actually a great example of this. Because it cannot be explained on the basis of cohort effects, even though the early cohorts became more liberal as they got younger. Can't be explained on the basis of age. It, it, there's a huge period effects within every cohort where basically you became part of an atmosphere in which it became so much more acceptable for people to be gay and for gay people to get married. So that's just a long-winded way of saying you can't explain people's political views solely on the basis of generation, but generation is important and it has to be considered in light of these other things. But there's certainly no sort of generation slash life cycle model where you could say people, I mean, actually, to some extent, I would argue what you're saying would almost argue for a pure life cycle model, right? It's like you're liberal when you're young, you get more moderate when you're middle-aged, and you're conservative when you're older. And that's just not... It's not a pure life cycle model. No, I didn't mean to apply that, but I think that there is obviously a very strong cohort effect, so it does matter what generation you're part of and what the prevailing attitudes within that generation is. I do think that two possibilities are often left out of contestation, because I can go back and show all of these articles, all of these assumptions saying, well, you know, the young people are with us, so we own the future. I mean, you know, the left always thinks that it's going to own the future, and yet it loses most elections. And I do think that's because people tend to overlook two factors. The first is that the cohort effect for one generation may be different from the cohort effect for the next generation. So even if Mm -hmm. you have a pretty strong left lean among one generation, the people who are 10 years younger may, for various reasons, be formed in an environment that makes them more conservative. But the second is that I do think people always underestimate the age effect. Now, I know that that, uh, you know, outline that, you know, if I'm not a liberal at the age of 20, you know, I have no heart, you know, all of that sort of, I agree that's overstated Mm -hmm. and that not everybody makes the transition and so on, but people don't actually think about that in the context of something like these debates about the demographic majority. And so the extent to which that has shifted, I think is always underestimated, which doesn't mean that it supersedes the other effect. Well, actually, let me uh, add to that if I could. I mean, I think they're not just underestimating the potential age effect, to refer back to what I was saying a little bit earlier, they're underestimating period effects. I mean, it could still be the case that a given cohort can be 10 points more democratic than another cohort, right, as they go through the life cycle. But if everybody's pro-democratic tendencies are compressed by things that are happening in the real world, by people's reaction to governance, by people's reaction to external events, by the way the sociopolitical landscape is changing in the country, then you're still in trouble, even if you're Cohort X is voting 10 points more. Millennials could continue voting like 15 or 10 or 15 points more Democratic than other cohorts. But if everybody shifts to the right by eight points, your goose is still cooked. So you see what I mean? It's not just that people don't understand about the relationship between age and cohort. They're not thinking about how period effects, these big macro changes in politics could move everybody to the right or to the left. And that's why, you know, you should always think about demographics and its effect on politics in the context of a a broader model. I mean, how is society changing? What are the big political issues? What's happening economically, right? I mean, what are people worried about? You know, who's getting the blame? I mean, these are all big, complicated political questions which get sort of walked into 
these sort of differences within the electorate and how more or less liberal they are, how more or less pro-democratic they are, more or less left they are. So I hope that's clear, but I'm just saying that there are just so many reasons not to assume that these changing demographic mix of the population, even if you believe in generational effects, for example, is going to be enough to assure you of electoral victories and accomplishing what you want to. And I think, you know, the reason is pretty simple why people on the left like to write articles like this and believe stuff like this. It makes it seem like there are no hard choices to make. It makes it seem like they can just continue doing what they do except turn up the volume on the megaphone. And they're bold enough, they will eventually triumph. And I think this is just magical, mystical thinking and has nothing to do with real world politics. So let's talk about some of those hard choices and let's talk a little bit about 2020. I mean, I'm struck by the extent to which this sort of informed punditry, as well as crucially, a lot of the most influential campaign advisors, campaign officials and candidates themselves have now embraced something I call the sort of progressive theory of voter mobilization. And the idea seems to be essentially that, first of all, the demographic shifts are going in our direction anyway, so we just have to make sure that our people turn up to the polls and that means that we're going to win. And second, more specifically, that there's this big reservoir of non-voters, that most non-voters are predisposed to support the Democrats because they are younger because they are more likely to be people of color, because they are more progressive in their policy preferences. And so therefore, there's no hard choices. As long as you run a proud progressive who appeals to the left, and in many ways the far left, that's going to infuse the democratic base, everybody's going to come out and vote, and then we beat Donald Trump. What do you think about that theory? Well, I'm not the only one to say this, but there's an enormous amount wrong empirically with the thesis. I mean, again, you can see why people want to believe it, but it really falls apart when you put some careful scrutiny onto the underlying data. Just take, for example, the idea that non-voters all lean to the left and non-voters are all from your preferred demographic. That's not true either. I mean, it may be true, for example, that non-voters are more likely to be Hispanic than they are to be white. But that doesn't mean that non-voters are going to tend to be Hispanic. That doesn't mean it at all, because Hispanics are not a large proportion of the population, particularly in the states that matter to the Democrats. In fact, if you look, leave aside nationally, look at the states that matter the most to the Democrats in the Rust Belt and so on. This is even true in a lot of places not in the Rust Belt. The majority of non-voters are white non-college, the very demographic that Trump drew his victory coalition from. So you may run your progressive candidate and that progressive candidate by appealing to people of color and whom young people and whatever they may jack up their turnout a bit overall and in these states but they're also going to jack up and high turnout elections are going to jack up turnout among you know the constituencies you don't want to show up to and the two things may very well be awash and in fact some of the studies seem to suggest that a truly polarizing candidate like sanders so someone who's viewed as more ideological will actually do more to increase turnout among the people who oppose you than the people who support you. So turnout is very much a two-edged sword. And the idea that it's always great to have high turnout and all you need is high turnout is just demonstrably untrue on the face of it. And then when you look at the sort of relative effectiveness of increasing turnout versus persuasion versus taking some of the voters away from the other side and what their relative effectiveness is, it's very clear that you get more bang for your buck to the extent to which you can move 
voters from the other team over to your team. And, and that's exactly how Trump became president of these United States. He moved people over from the Democratic team to the Republican team, and it was, you know, a tremendous success. You knock some of that away from him in 2020, you were very likely to win the election. Our analyses showed, for example, that if Hillary Clinton could have just reduced the shift of white non-college voters toward Trump in the Midwest by just 20% or 25%, and just somewhat less than he actually got in terms of a margin shift, she would be president today. And if, in fact, she managed to get black turnout up to exactly the levels that Obama had in 2012, she still would have lost the election. So it's not to say that turnout doesn't matter. It's not to say that black turnout wouldn't have benefited the Democrats in 2016 if it had been higher and won't benefit the Democrats in 2020 if it's higher. But it's a matter of the relative magnitude of the effects. To assume that turnout is this magical pixie dust, as I say, you can sprinkle on your progressive ideas and political strategy, and it will make everything right. It's just to fly in the face of the way the electorate is actually constructed and the actual political dynamics that affect the different parts of the electorate and how much or how little they're mobilized. It just doesn't hold up to scrutiny, but it does make people feel good, and it does provide a way of acknowledging that, well, okay, there's going to be a few people turned off by wanting to tank private insurance or decriminalize the border or whatever. But it doesn't matter because we're going to get so many other people to show up from our team that it won't matter. Yeah, I think people always believe whatever reduces cognitive dissonance for most. And I'm sure that's true of the two of us at the table as well. So it's always something to be self-reflective about. But it does seem like a lot of the attractiveness of this particular theory is that it allows people to avoid making those hard choices you talked about. There's a great study just for the listeners by the Knight Foundation that just looked at non-voters. I wrote about it on The Atlantic and it does show quite clearly that non-voters are more diverse than voters, for example. About 25% of non-voters are black or Hispanic as opposed to about 20% of voters. But about two in three of non-voters are still white. Right. Um, they, ideologically, non-voters... The majority of those are white non-college, though. Yep. They're non-college within white, so yeah. And in fact, of course, white voters are relatively more likely to be college-educated and white non-voters are relatively more likely to be non-college-educated. Mm -hmm. So that's challenging, and that shows through in a lot of their political views. So it turns out that they are moderately more likely than voters to be in favor of some mildly economically progressive policies like a slightly higher minimum wage, but they are much more conservative, right. markedly more conservative on many key cultural issues. So non-voters on the whole are more likely to favor a wall on the Mexican border. They are more likely to oppose a path to citizenship for undocumented migrants. They're more likely to oppose abortion rights they're more likely to oppose immigration. So they certainly are not the sort of slam-dunk constituency that people said. So if it's not possible to just mobilize and win that way, and if, as you're saying, it's unrealistic to assume you can mobilize one side of the election but not the other, what should Democrats do? I mean, if they want to take demographics seriously and they want to take seriously the changing nature of the American electorate, what kind of strategy can they run to maximize their advantage without falling into this trap? Well, it seems like the answer is pretty clear just from some of the data we've been talking about. There's programs you can run on or ideas you can run on or themes that you could run on that are very congenial to the very constituencies you want to mobilize and are favorable to you, blacks, Latinos, single women, the college educated, whatever, that won't turn off at least the persuadable segment of people who don't vote or even voted for the other side, but have problems with a candidate like Trump or with the Republican Party. And those are typically 
more economically oriented programs. They're typically programs that aren't as sort of massive as Sanders is putting into play. For example, I think you mentioned the, uh, well, maybe we haven't talked about Medicare for all, but it is a great example. The data are very clear that you can get a very favorable response from practically everybody at this point with the idea of a public option. This is like a, you know, Buttigieg line on this, and I thought maybe I made this up first, but anyway, Medicare- It's a brilliant line. <laughs> Medicare for anyone who wants it, Medicare for all who wants it. That, people love that. The idea of Medicare for all that's gonna wipe out the private insurance system and is going to raise your taxes and do all this stuff, it's not so popular. And just, to explain, popular. just to explain the difference, yeah. in one world, there is a state-run medical insurance program that still allows the state to negotiate hard with drug companies for drug right. prices, bring down prices from hospital and all of those kinds of things which are really important. And everybody is going to be able to opt into it. Mm -hmm. uh, there's different models of how to finance it, how much you're going to have to pay. But the point is, there is going to be this competition from a non-profit state-run medical insurance program. And if you like it, if it's working well, every American is going to be able to go and partake in it. But you will still have private insurance programs running alongside them. And so nobody has to lose their insurance. And if the medical program run by the state doesn't work very well, then people can go to the private insurance system. That's the idea of Medicare for All you wanted. Um, the idea of Medicare for All, full stop, is to say we abolish private insurance, mm -hmm. we make a mandatory state system, which is actually more radical than the NHS in Britain, because in Britain you are allowed to have private insurances, whereas on some of the proposals by Bernie Sanders and others, you wouldn't be allowed to take out a private insurance. You would have to opt in into one state-run system. And of course the fear is, well, it's a single point of failure. Uh, if that is well run, if that is well established, then that might work reasonably well. But if it fails, there are no alternatives. There right, are no right. ways of mm -hmm. getting out of the problems. Yeah, the whole thing is kind of a walking attack ad for the other side, which is bizarre since we know, in political context, since we know that health care is an issue that dramatically favors the Democrats on average. The Democrats ran it in, in 2018 it extremely well. They're preferred on the issue by far over the Republicans. It's top of mind for many, 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 many voters. It's what, probably the most important issue and people pick out of a cluster of issues. So why would you toss away your obvious advantage on this issue by doing something that would be that controversial, that open to attacks? It doesn't make a lot of sense. And it also doesn't make a lot of sense to put things in play like decriminalizing the border and providing subsidized health insurance to undocumented immigrants, things like that. People are not okay with this. And they're particularly not okay with this in the swing areas of the country among the, the voters who are more persuadable who you want to reach. They don't want people put in cages at the borders. Most of these people are for some kind of immigration reform. There's a sweet spot there like there is in a lot of these other issue areas that's perfectly acceptable to persuadable voters in the center of the country and are absolutely catnip for your the constituencies you want to mobilize that are within your coalition. So why wouldn't you emphasize those kinds of programs and those kinds of approaches instead of things that are much more controversial and at the margin might bring a few more people out from your favorite constituent. Like maybe young people will come out for Medicare for all, I don't know. Maybe Hispanics will come out a little bit more for decriminalizing the border. That's not clear to me at all. But just let's say it's true. You're going to lose more probably on the other side than you're going to gain from that alleged mobilization premium. So this doesn't so, so make, this does not compute as winning coalitional politics. It just does not. So how hard do you think the choices the Democrats need to make actually are? Can Democrats basically run a robustly progressive 
policy platform in the right way, framed in the right way without overreaching and maximize the chances of winning? Or are there some things, for example, that you're strongly in favor of uh, where you would say, you know what, this is something we just have to give up or this is one of the hard choices if we want to win in 2020 and remove Trump? Actually, I don't know. We know that the party as a whole has moved to the left. We know that the country as a whole has moved to the left. There is a mood indicator, policy mood indicator that James Stimson, Christopher Ellis have developed over the years that uses a huge basket of questions to assess how liberal or not people are in policy issues. We now have the most liberal policy mood in the United States or left policy mood we've had since the early 1960s. That's something. Something's going on. And if you look, for example, at the so-called moderate candidates in the Democratic primary race, if you look at what Biden is running on, or Klobuchar for them, look at what Biden is running on, just as an exemplar. He's running on a very progressive program. It's to the left of what Hillary, it's way to the left of what Barack Obama ran on. And these things are all pretty popular that he's for, from the public option to doing at least something along the lines of a Green New Deal, raising the minimum wage. There are sort of moderate versions of all the stuff that Bernie Sanders says he's for that are actually pretty popular. I mean, doing something to make college more affordable, as opposed to like, well, you know, we'll just give it to everybody. This is not rocket science based on the data that we look at. It is quite possible to run in a very progressive program, particularly looked at in, you know, comparative context over the last 20 years, and actually be in a good spot to both mobilize your coalition and be able to reach some of these more persuadable voters from some of these demographics who aren't so favorable to you. Why wouldn't you do that? Well, because people believe in this mobilization elixir. And I think very importantly, because we talked about this too, they look at these so-called persuadable voters and they say, these people aren't really persuadable voters. They're racially resentful. They voted for Trump or they even at least maybe they just thought about voting for Trump and then didn't vote. I mean, we cannot reach these people. So why not? You know, just turn up the volume and be as progressive as we want to be, because there's no point to trying to reach those other people. And the only people who want to do this are neoliberal sellouts you know, <laughs> who don't really get where our country is going, you know. So presumed you believe that there are these persuadable voters. Give me a 60 second sort of summary of why there are in fact persuadable voters that, you know, have changed their mind from voting for Obama in 12 to Trump in 16 and why they might change their mind back. Well, one indicator of this that's very important is if just look at the 2018 election. 2018 election was not run on particularly radical grounds by most of the successful candidates. In fact, the successful ones had more moderate programs. The people who took back the House, the winning gubernatorial and senatorial candidates. If you look at the shift from 2016 Trump voting to 2018 Democratic voting, it's almost entirely explained by people who voted for Trump in 2016 and then voted for a Democrat in 2018. Democrats who are running on a moderately progressive program, who are running on health care, running on like, you know, Trump and the GOP, or they're not doing it right. I mean, the rhetoric and so on is like too extreme. They're just too extreme. You know, we're for a different approach to government. We're on your side, you know, as opposed to those people who are not on your side. It was a pretty simple message in most of these constituencies, and it actually worked. So that, I think, is a bit of a model. And you should carry that into 2020, rather than this sort of implicit or explicit voter mobilization or bust kind of strategy. So I want to end on a more prospective question, which is that one of the things that troubles me, and I've said this on, a, on this podcast before, 
about versions of the inevitable demographic majority is that it paints a pretty nasty picture of what America will actually look like, even if it's true. So obviously, especially if the Republican Party continues to be sort of inflected by Trumpism for a long time, I would much prefer the Democrats to win than the Republicans. And there seems to be something heartening about the idea that the demographic trends are in the favor of a Democratic Party. And so, you know, that'll be great. But even then, this idea of the rising demographic majority still troubles me because I have to say that I don't love the idea of a country in which 20 or 30 years from now I can walk down the street and guess by somebody's appearance, by the amount of melanin in their skin, in which political party they vote for. And I think it's going to be a pretty nasty and resentful country if there's, you know, a rump of 45 or 48 percent of white voters who keep being voted out and they feel like they've lost what they have to say and the other people are in charge. They're still going to retain a lot of financial and other power. They're still going to retain a lot of weapons. It just seems like a very dystopian vision to me. Now, what I want to argue, what I want to hope, is that there might actually be a demographic realignment, that when you look at how Irish Americans and Italian Americans voted 30 or 40 years ago, they tended to vote for the Democrats and now they tend to vote for the Republicans. And in a similar way, it may be that, you know, assuming that we can predict what the demographic alignment is going to be 30 years from now may turn out to be quite naive. Uh, now, there's a bad version of that, which allows a kind of Trumpist GOP that has cleverly also slightly expanded its demographic base to be in power. But there's mm-hmm. a more positive version of that in which race is not as dividing a line of American politics or at least of American party politics as it is now. What do you think the chances for that are? Do you think that the basic demographic coalition and polarization we will see 30 years from now will look very familiar to those of us who are thinking about this today? Or do you think that there might be real shifts in who's part and of what coalition? And even of a current setup, which is that the Democratic Party is a very diverse coalition and the Republican Party is much more homogeneous party. Do you think that both parties might come to have quite diverse coalitions in ways that would probably help us make real improvements in public policy and all kinds of other things. Am I being too optimistic? No, I don't think you're being too optimistic. I share some of that optimism, and I certainly share the view that it would be not all that desirable for us, you know, several decades down the line to have, you know, an even more polarized country than we have today, where you can sort of read off people's political views from their demographic attributes. I don't think that would be so great and where people would bitterly resent the other side to the extent they do today and even more so because it's been decades more of internecine warfare. Now, that wouldn't be so great. I think there's a lot to be said for a big tent universalistic approach on both parties' parts and that if the Democrats are making a mistake now, given the way that the underlying terrain, political terrain is shifting. It's not taking advantage of that to say, well, you know, we have a little bit of a wind at our backs because of some of these other changes. Let's reach out to some of these demographics that are declining and say, well, we've got your back too. We're all in this together. It's not a matter of our identities, our sub-national, ethnic, whatever identities. It's a matter of we're all Americans. You know, we need to make this country work as best it can. We need to take the left behind parts of the country and move them forward. And we have a program to do this and we take everybody's concerns seriously. And if the Democrats do that and they actually have some success with that sort of universalistic approach, the logic of political competition should move the Republicans back toward the center and try to do roughly the same thing, just with a more conservative slant, right? Because if the Democrats undercut 
the ability of the Republicans to have this highly polarized coalition and run of supermajorities among white non-college voters, then all of a sudden they have no choice but to reach out to Hispanics, reach out to young people, reach out to black voters. I mean, they, they have to, just to be competitive. So I think that logic will eventually prevail. But I do see the Democrats as having a big responsibility in being the prime mover of this change. They have to get off of this, you know, rising demographics and voter mobilization will solve everything and we don't need to worry about the rest of the country that's being left behind. I just think this is toxic. If you want to have a different kind of country where problems actually get solved and you have effective governing majorities that can do the things you want to do, you have to move in a different direction. And if you do, the Republican Party is not doomed to be forever a Trumpist Republican Party. It could change. And I think that's something very much to be desired. Rui, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, it was fun. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. This podcast is generously supported by the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please make suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Chess Pieces.